Hello ladies and mostly gentlemen, this bonus episode is brought to you by Ben Konopensky, the first contributor who will go down in this show's history for his charitable donation to this podcast, in exchange for today's episode. Thank you kindly sir, it is greatly appreciated, and speaking on gratitude, thanks and appreciation goes out to Nuclear Heat Graphics for the artwork. Check out NuclearHeatShop.com to get Shaheem to hook you up for a great price. Now, on to today's episode. Kenny Omega, you're getting a treat right now because you will know him. Kenny is a revolutionary. He breaks the paradigms of traditional pro wrestling. I, I've seen Kenny Omega grow from uh, a kid that worked the independence in Winnipeg, becoming a star in Japan. Kenny has taken the extraordinary step of going beyond just wrestling. He's learned the language. He's learned the culture. He was a good entree into wrestling. Bringing in a ton of new fans that didn't feel safe. He kind of helped me with my uh, self-confidence. Bang! In wrestling, if a person is portrayed as gay, it's usually a stereotypical way. It's usually played for laughs. It was really important to me to see queer stories on TV, and I never thought I would see one in wrestling. You know, I'm watching this going like, this is not just a five-star match, this is above a five-star match, and this is one of the best matches I've ever seen. He had a three-year WWE contract, and then he made a choice. He quit on his own terms. He stuck to his beliefs. He never changed the person he was. The whole business is changing now, and he's kind of like leading the wave. He wants it to be more than what WWF and like Hulk Hogan and stuff like that was. He's somebody that we haven't seen before. You know, he's like an Elvis. Like Elvis in 1956. If Elvis was a wrestler and living in 2018, he might be Kenny Omega. This goes beyond wrestling. This is a story about a Canadian guy who's at the apex of a multi-billion dollar industry, and nobody's talking about it. Well, hello again, folks. Goddamn, I was kind of hoping to be a while before I'd speak on a topical subject, but Excalibur knows what's up. You gotta give the people what they want. And speaking of which, if you need to know what the good word is, you've come to the right place, y'all, because WrestlingHeadlines.com slash podcast is all the independent primetime audio you need to fill those voids of curiosity in your life via in-depth, comprehensive conversations. From the god of monsters himself, Matthew Mayer, a.k.a. The Implications, he's got your back on the weekly wrestling coverage covered with... LOP Radio and the pay-per-view review show Aftershock. Plus, we got your up-to-date and world-famous all-night-long wrestling podcast that gets you up to speed on Ring of Honor during these dark times. And the veteran Surgeon General himself of LOP has graced us with his return one final time for one final run at the top, as the WrestleMania 2.0 series is available now. And the same goes for the revolutionary Global Impact players Shane and Fan as they unearth the forgotten and rewritten narratives of the past with WWF The Legacy Series. Well, you guys should know the rules of the game. My name, I proclaim, remains David K. Martin, and today I'm going to do something slightly different today because I'm going to be attempting to explain to Ben as well as the rest of y'all, in my opinion at least, why Kenny Omega has a legacy in professional wrestling. 
and also provide what would be considered as five of his best matches that could symmetrically describe how he's developed this reputation amongst the entire professional wrestling viewing community. I know it's easier said than done, so bear with me because I've never done anything like this and I don't exactly have any sort of frame of reference to go by here. And I, I also should just put it out there so I don't come off as some smug wannabe know-it-all. I've only been watching New Japan since January of 2016 and, and I, I, I don't even watch every single event. And more importantly, I've only begun backtracking through Japanese wrestling history in the past year or less. So if anyone listening to this has any interesting stories, memories, or even match recommendations, hit me up at either uh, mapleleafpod at gmail.com or at mlwhistorypod on the Twitter gimmick. I'm not even sure. And if you're lucky, I might actually remember to mention these in the upcoming follow-up episode. Whenever that may be, I don't know, but due to contractual obligations, it will be released on at least a Monday. Alright, so where am I getting started? Well, how about from hockey to rugby to basketball to the intense soccer fan base and the competitive collegiate wrestlers aspiring for Olympic success? You could think of professional wrestling as at least being intrinsically linked to Canadian history thanks to the diehard audience support here that has helped with the shaping of its national identity. Like Whether it was voting with our wallets and demanding events to come to our provinces or just influencing the sponge-brained youths who've absorbed the energy behind the barricades and have spent the rest of their lives just trying to replicate those nostalgic feelings for themselves. Wrestling in Canada has, at least in my perspective, been oddly respected and revered as a semi-competitive legitimate sport despite popularity corroding over the past couple decades. I believe you can blame the rise of the internet, as along with Bret Hart's comments on Off the Record over the years, the Benoit tragedy, and obviously the decline of WWE over the past 20 years hasn't helped out either. But with fandoms here, essentially with Canadians, in my opinion, I believe we generally accept or at least tolerate, if not respect, everyone else's habits, differences, and nerdy character traits in adulthood. Childhood, teen years, different fucking story. Adulthood, much different story. But you know, with the obvious exceptions to the rule. I mean, hell, I'm sure some of you don't like me having this fucking patriotic gimmick, but I am genuinely not trying to do so in a way that actually bothers people like I'm holier than thou. I mean, really, if you want to talk about that, you can't just push your shit on someone like it's the great gospel. Like, for instance, I post these podcasts on my personal Facebook for my friends to potentially hear, knowing that the ones who do, out of curiosity, will probably just make fun of me for the way I talk or pop when I say something self-referential. But it's not like I'm going to hit each and every single one of them up and say, hey, support my show or we're not friends anymore. Like, fuck that, man. I, I get it. I used to watch hockey in the X Games and I boarded and then eventually I fell out of that shit and that's literally no different to just about everyone else I know. It's like they all just outgrew that shit and it happens to everybody. And with all that being said, I'd like to eventually do an all-time top 25 greatest Canadian wrestlers of all time list and I'm not gonna lie, I'm still making my Excel spreadsheet as I speak and I'm having the most difficult goddamn time trying to place Kenny Omega's rank somewhere because I'm biased to whether or not non-wrestling fans have seen or heard of any of these people. Omega, in my opinion, should rank at least 
in the top five polished pound for pound wrestlers, but professional wrestling is a storytelling business and performance is something held in a higher regard sometimes over competitive style. So therefore, some would even argue that Owen Hart, Kevin Owens, or Kevin Steen, perhaps even the likes of Roddy Piper and Edge, or to a lesser extent adopted Canadians like Chris Jericho or the fucking The Rock, would all sooner be recognized as legitimate greatest of all time contenders beyond the borders. And genuinely, I am struggling to juggle my subjective perspective with the quote unquote factual objective beliefs of other fans like hell if you like to share your two cents just hit me up on fucking twitter i guess or fucking lopforums.com in the column section now at least without further delay let's get this shit underway cue the music God, y'all, it feels like this podcast has had like three different intros at this point. But nonetheless, today I'll be covering the kayfabe career thus far of the most polarizing top star in independent professional wrestling history, one Kenny Omega. Born as Tyson Smith in the Transcoma suburbs of Winnipeg, Manitoba to parents Marla and Lance Smith on October 16th, 1983, Omega has cited growing up as an all-around avid sports fan, playing soccer and later playing as a goalie in hockey before he transitioned into college, where he would eventually just drop out altogether for professional wrestling. You see, being born in the latter half of the year meant that he actually graduate high school at 17, so when he had a friend suggest to him to take wrestling classes at Top Rope Championship Wrestling while he was in college, his father actually had to sign off on those liability papers under the affibbed agreement that Kenny was just doing wrestling school for fun and still maintaining playing hockey and going to college. Oh, Lance. Little did Lance know that he spawned a carny, and his ass got worked. <laughs> the beginning of Kenny Omega's career can't be told though without acknowledging the true roots of his background. And coincidentally enough, Tyson Smith's original trainer Vance Nevada authored the book I'm going to be using extensively and heavily referencing from today called Wrestling in the Canadian West which was published in 2009 for Crowbar Press and is actually on sale right now as of this recording for just $10 at crowbarpress.com at crowbarpress.com. I'm sorry. I, I, I am literally just realizing now that pretending to be a radio personality means it's easy to lose yourself plugging anything nonsensically. That's my bad. That was, that was my bad. Um, but there is, there is method to this macho madness. Oh yeah, brother. <laughs> because on, um, one second. On page 154 of Vance Nevada's Wrestling in the Canadian West, whoops, you'll find a write-up on Top Rope Championship Wrestling, which I'll briefly be quoting and reading from. And mind you, much like my podcast, this book is heavily self-referential, based around the happenings of the other competing federations in their each respective areas. So I'm just mentioning that because although this is a scrapbook at first glance, it is still nonetheless a book, and jumping ahead will always cause a disruptive flow of context. Now, at least allow me to provide some additional context first. You see, a professional wrestler named Bob St. Laurent also went by the ring name Bobby J, who you might actually remember as a fucking job guy who got beat up and squashed by Money Inc. in 92. He had accrued enough income over the course of his career to purchase Manitoba's fledgling River City Wrestling from owner Wayne Stanton, who expressed interest in leaving the business behind him entirely. Now, apparently both men came to an agreement, shook hands, 
signed a quote-unquote legal business contract before money was ever exchanged. Bobby J was under the belief that he had to restore some credibility in the indie promotion and went out of his way to contact all the wrestlers in the area, all the venues that they could work, and even called up Ernie Todd, who was a rival promoter who represented Canadian Wrestling Federation in an attempt to make peace between the two businesses. Now, hilariously enough, and fuck, don't hate the player, just hate the game. Because, <laughs> literally, minutes after Bobby J, and that is not hyperbole, that's in the story. Minutes after Bobby J got off the phone with Ernie Todd. Todd, who's the owner of the CWF, calls up Wayne Stanton, who's still the owner of River City Wrestling, and makes a counteroffer with a fucking down payment. Like, these motherfucking carnies, man. And despite a goddamn written agreement, Bobby St. Laurent got swerved. And so, ideally, the concept was is that Ernie Todd wanted to monopolize Canadian wrestling like the NWA did in the States, but obviously that never came to fruition because he was a fucking shyster. <laughs> and although Bobby had setbacks, he didn't make his promoting and booking debut on April 17th, 2000 with the advent of Top Rope Championship Wrestling, which primarily comprised of the former River City roster who had jumped ship Noah style after the word got around of what Ernie and Wade did to Bobby J. So now, if I may quote Wrestling in the Canadian West, page 154, quote, St. Laurent's approach to promoting was influenced by his own experiences in the sport. He secured venues which would best suit his type of shows, providing an aggressive schedule for the young roster. And St. Laurent was open about his ongoing projects. Top Row Championship Wrestling was similar to its predecessor in that it focused a great deal of emphasis on developing its new talent. The most successful student to be produced by Top Rope is Transcoma native Kenny Omega. TRCW identified, Omega, born Tyson Smith in 1983, is a natural talent, and within two months he held the TRCW Tag Team Championships for Ronnie Attitude. When rival interests opened Premier Championship Wrestling, they poached Omega, along with 15 other wrestlers to join the new company. They gave him headline status and opportunities to work with TNA stars Chris Sabin and The Amazing Red. In 2005, he attended the annual camp hosted by former NWA heavyweight champion Harley Race in Eldon, Missouri, and one month later was signed to a developmental contract to WWE. Within a month, Omega was wrestling in Georgia for Deep South Wrestling, where he stayed for one year before requesting his release, end quote. Now, if you've seen TSN's Engraved on a Nation documentary that was called Omega Man, you'll see that Kenny Omega defeated Ryan Price at Bumper's Bar in Winnipeg on June 16th of 2000, which was Kenny's official debut match at age 17. And even Ryan had actually discussed working with Omega in a general sense because they'd go on to wrestle each other two more times that week in that bar. And it's interesting to me how sincere everyone actually puts him over for his natural ability so early on in his career. Also, just an interesting tidbit to add from wrestling in the Canadian West is that in the summer of 2001, the Winnipeg Sun actually highlighted uh, Top Row Championship Wrestling over a six-week period with a feature column called the Sunshine Points. A daily, a daily tabloid showcasing Kenny Omega and Vance Nevada, among other roster members. And also, it's worth mentioning that in the TRCW all-time standings, with 266 recorded cards taking place between April 17th of 2000 to January 25th of 2003, Omega was placed as the 16th best wrestler in the company's history with 48 matches won out of 103 bouts wrestled overall. 
Okay, now I'm going to transition over to Omega's time in Premier Championship Wrestling, and honestly, because I don't think you guys will feel it's relevant, I'm going to fail to mention a lot of shit. And one of the things I think I should mention is that, despite the unimaginable success that Top Rope actually was obtaining by 2001, Bobby J actually fired his booker Michael Davidson for unknown reasons one day, just as Davidson was entering the building, and no one is really exactly sure why, but my speculation is a JR quote. Cash or creative? And rightly so, Michael Davidson was pissed and wanted to do something about it. Like, he wanted to prove that TRCW's success had been due solely to his creative contributions and not to the promotional efforts of Bobby J. Kind of reminds me of McMahon, doesn't it? Now, Top Rope ran weekly shows at the Palladium Nightclub in uh, Winnipeg, and coincidentally, Davidson actually befriended a doorman named Andrew Shellcross, who claimed he could just secure support from the venue just like that, so... When the time came for the club to undergo renovations, the two went to Michael Davidson's shoot job to promote a well-marketed wrestling venture to his boss, a multi-million dollar telemarketing mogul named John Nagoyan. And they actually struck a deal where they were funded forty fucking thousand dollars in capital to launch the new brand, Premier Championship Wrestling. And this is fucking hilarious, because somehow Davidson actually convinced his boss Nagoyan, this multi-millionaire, to purchase a wrestling ring from fucking Bobby J, because apparently it was the only hookup in the province. And so, what ended up happening was Nagoyan actually legitimately approached Bobby J, pretending to be some upcoming kickboxing promoter, and B Bobby J only sold the ring to this guy because he believed he had his thumb under the competition and didn't even recognize Nagoyan. Like, even former fucking Top Rope alumni Darren Metzler actually is quoted in Vance Nevada's book saying, quote, I feel bad about it. I had a big hand in tearing apart Top Rope. My job was to distract Bobby J so he wasn't paying attention to what was really going on behind him during the sale of the ring. I reassured him that I had never heard of Nagoyan, so he couldn't possibly have any ties with wrestling, end quote. So why is this all relevant? Well, quite simply because Davidson secured all but six members of Top Rope's roster to start running his own shows in the beginning of 2002. Kenny ended his run in Top Rope Championship Wrestling in December of 01 when he lost the Unified Junior Heavyweight title for the second time to Ryan Wood. He then go on to wrestle for fucking PCW beginning in January and he'd get pushed pretty strongly with a 75% winning ratio in his first year, mostly only losing PCW Junior Heavyweight title matches. And that's saying something because by September 03, Omega actually won the vacant PCW Company Championship from Adam Knight in a tournament final, but for some reason would actually just lose it over a month later to a Canadian freelancer named Ross Skills. I love that name. Behind the scenes though, PCW had a similar scandal that they had overcome in a similar vein. Shitty comparison, but in a similar vein to ROH. You see, their financial backer, John Nagoyan, actually grew disinterested with the political maneuverings of professional wrestling after Bobby J had gotten in touch with him and actually was hoping that fucking he'd buy him out. And then later, Ernie Todd requested a partnership and a company merger. Like, get the fuck out of here, you guys. Nagoyan eventually withdrew from PCW, leaving it with Shellcross and Davidson, and went back to his telemarketing firm. And <laughs> wouldn't you know it, his telemarketing firm was later investigated for criminal charges just in a couple months following. Ultimately, Nagoyan though was, uh, he was found dead in a Winnipeg motel room from a self-inflicted gunshot. Oof, how do I get out of that? Well, in case I didn't mention it before, CWF was an NWA territory from 99 to 04 with Ernie Todd actually briefly being voted in as the president of NWA, but CWF in itself wasn't doing too well financially. 
in parallel to this, Shell Cross and Davison actually had a falling out, and Michael left PCW in mid-2003. Like, the story goes is that Mike was paying all the boys himself out of pocket, and the owner of the Palladium building actually didn't follow through on his promise to help them out financially. Because of all the backstage, behind-the-scenes drama that typically happens in wrestling, CWF and PCW temporarily had a working agreement together until sometime in 2004, and actually used Kenny Omega as a bridge in this joint venture by having him go on to win the vacant CWF heavyweight title in December of 03, and then regain the PCW heavyweight title in January of 04 from Raw Skills. By August of 04, if I may skip ahead, Raw Skills and Omega for some reason teamed up to win the PCW tag team titles for a month there before they ended up losing the belts back to Chris Rain and Sean Houston. And by October of 2004, Omega wrestled in his first big-time wrestling match in an inter-promotional contest, losing to Petey Williams for the NWA TNA X Division Championship on the NWA 56th Anniversary Show. Legend has it that it was at this show he was actually offered a deal, but he never took it. And how different history could have been if he was a member of the X Division, man. Him and AJ Styles tearing it up on Spike TV in 05? Like, Jesus Christ. Well, well... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, sorry, I'm just imagining here. Let's get back on track. You see, Kenny would actually get stripped of both of his Federation's championships due to an unknown injury that saw him out of action for at least four months, but he would return by July of 04, and then, if I may skip ahead to June of 05, he'd actually go on to defeat the Amazing Red in the first annual Premier Cup to become the inaugural NWA Canadian X Division Champion, and it was in that same tournament that saw him defeat Chris Sabin in the semis. And you know what? If you didn't already know this useless, trivial fucking fact, I'm about to blow your fucking minds. Michael Davidson, post-PCW, started another federation in November of 2003 called Action Wrestling Entertainment. But that's not what you needed to know. What you need to know is that he wouldn't have a follow-up show until its official launch in, like, 2005 proper. And I'll admit, this is beyond me. I don't know anybody who actually remembers AWE firsthand. But get this. Davidson would obtain another financial backer by the name of Jeff Dick, who would actually go on record in the Winnipeg Sun, proclaiming on January 27th, 2005, that his intentions were to earn AWE the distinction as Winnipeg's fourth pro sports franchise among the Canadian Football League, the International Hockey League, and the Northern Baseball League, respectively. Davidson even went as far as to book Dan Severn, Buff Bagwell, Rikishi, Jim Duggan and Jamie Noble as the big names of his promotion, which I shit you not was enough needed for Viewers Choice Canada to host AWE on pay-per-view for September 5th, 2005. And after that, they did a series of TV tapings featuring Lex Luger, the Steiner Brothers, and fucking Buff Bag. Unbelievable! So on August 10th of 2005, AWE had taped this show called Overload, and episode 4 features Dan, the fucking Beast Severn, defeating Kenny Omega in a shoot fight, in a fucking shoot fight, in a I quote, shoot, end quote, fight. Uh, something gets me, someone get me this fucking footage right this instant, right now, right now, and I will PayPal you all the change I have in my wallet. Like, I can't, I can't believe that. And even when I was trying to find any surviving footage, I came across a fucking Reddit post from Squared Circle Thread where a, a Reddit user found out he, he briefly considered quitting wrestling for MMA, and he actually has a 6-2-0 record. Like, his only losses are against Dan Severn and Travis Fulton in 2007. Holy shit, dude. Like, can, can he... 
He can do anything he puts his mind to. That is incredible. And just over a month after that Dan Severn shoot fight, Omega would then travel to Harley Race's camp to get a little polish and a good recommendation. Apparently, he'd only wrestle once for Harley's World League Wrestling promotion, but the September 24th, 2005 card he lost Keith Walker on featured not only Kenta in the semis, as in Hideo Itami, but also Kenta Kobashi wrestling in the main event six months removed from his two-year reign as Noah's GHC Heavyweight Champion. There you go. I'd honestly speculate naively that Kenny was probably rubbing shoulders with these Japanese legends and probably had a greater influence on him than Harley Race and Ken Patera's training. Just my speculation, and folks, I will always remind you to do your own research, take your own notes, and find some credible sources to compare and contrast your knowledge with. Because, just for the fuck of it, I actually did check out Wikipedia since some jackass on Facebook thought it was a good idea to use as a research method. And you know what? Someone smarter than me, please update this shit, because I would like to at least restore some faith in it. Because Kenny Omega made his official Deep South debut on April 20th, 2006, defeating the future Heath Slater in 723 on DSW episode 12. The match posted against Mac Johnson in October was just a tryout match that got him his deal after the fact. Not his official debut. But getting back on track, he'd only wrestle 15 matches during his developmental run, winning only 5 of which before demanding his immediate release, where he'd return to Canada shortly thereafter for PCW. And that's where he'd make his return in winning fashion against old rival Raw Skills on September 14th, and then go on to defeat the infamous AJ Styles in a dream match one week later on September 21st. And now I'm just going to play you a little clip from the Engraved on a Nation documentary, just so you can understand how important and how significant this match meant to Omega. In the summer of 2006, I got a phone call from Kenny. I could tell he seemed kind of down. He says, well, do you have anything coming up? Any, anything really interesting? We're talking about bringing in AJ Styles. Winnipeg guy against uh, a world-renowned superstar, I might actually be good enough to take this to another level. Styles match kind of reinvigorated my spirit for being a wrestler. I thought I always want to innovate or take a chance to step out of my own comfort zone and I'll just be myself. That'll be my character. And what's the greater reason why? It doesn't need to be one. It's just who I am. Jumping ahead to 2007, Kenny would actually go on to win PCW's third annual Premier Cup and then on September 27th of this year for PCW's Back to School. Samoa Joe in his prime defeated Kenny Omega in what I could just imagine being an all-time classic and then just three days later, the formerly AWE got back into business and rebranded themselves as Wrestling Fan Experience WFX. <laughs> Cheesy as fuck, I know, but it's noteworthy because Ultimo Dragon defeated Kenny Omega in a 25-minute match and then later 
later that same month, Omega would debut for the White Hot Pro Wrestling Syndicate <laughs> and Jersey All Pro Wrestling. What the hell ever happened to PWS? Uh, beginning in January of 2008, Kenny wins the PCW Heavyweight title for the third time now, but this only marks his shortest reign for about 35 days as he'd lose it back from the man he won it from, Mike Angels, at PCW's 6th anniversary show. But in the midst of that time, Kenny made his pay-per-view debut for Wrestling Van Experience on February 2nd, 2008, and another losing effort against Ultimo Dragon at the World Card Cup of Wrestling to about an 800-seat audience in Winnipeg, so not all that worldly if you ask me. Keeping on track with 2008, Omega then goes on to defeat Low-Key in another dream match on March 8th at Jersey All-Pro's Cage Fury 2008 for the Jersey All-Pro Heavyweight title. Two weeks after Mike Angels defeated him, Kenny won the PCW Heavyweight title back, and once he regained it, he went on to represent the company as the top guy for the next 1,085 days. That's just 10 days shy of three years straight. And on top of that, he makes his Ring of Honor debut for July's Northern Navigation show, getting bested by Delirious in Toronto. Just 10 days after that match, Omega embarks on his first excursion to Japan, wrestling for DDT on August 4th of 2008, and in his second ever match, for DDT at least, he lost to Kota Ibushi in a 2 out of 3 Falls Hardcore match. And this will also be around the time that Kenny would meet and befriend Michael, Na Michael Naka Naka Nakazawa for what it's worth. And with that, I'm going into my first recommended match, which you can find on YouTube if you've never seen this before. It's titled Kenny Omega vs. Kota Ibushi, first ever hardcore match in Japan, August 2008. And I'm just putting it out there. Don't start talking some shit to that misguided YouTuber. We all know that's just horribly written. Don't give him shit for it. But seriously, I recommend this match to someone who isn't a fan of DDT, personally. Like, for those of you who've actually seen Vice's docu-series, The Wrestlers, I'll tell ya, I really loved all the episodes but the DDT show. That one was just so hit or miss with me. It just left me not wanting more ever again, like. So with that being said, I recommend this match because as of this recording, we're now five months deep into the COVID era and I have lost so much love for professional wrestling with all these aesthetic changes and all these fucked up booking decisions and with everything going on so when when you watch this match it feels like a lifetime ago off on some far away distant planet like this this watch is like to me at least like a hybrid mixture of early 90s all japan mixed with ecw and even some wwf and the attitude era all at once like talking about hardcore wrestling like there's no commentary and obviously the crowd is japanese so i'm not gonna play you the match but instead highlights from the Omega Man documentary on this match. I want to make professional wrestling about unity and equality. A big reason why that company was able to do what it did, him and Kota Ibushi. If I were to create a perfect wrestling specimen, it would be Kota Ibushi. He's like from another planet. Koda just sort of like has this ability to be amazing if he feels like it. He just seems like it was handed to him by the gods to be this talented. When we saw and talked to Kenny um, when he was first trying to crack into DDT over in Japan, he's like, Koda Ibushi is just like my doppelganger. He's my twin over there. He's me. Wow, this, this person is incredibly talented and I just have this feeling that he sees wrestling the way I do, and I have to fight him. Hey, Bushy, where are you? Ah, 
There you are. Get over here. He saw someone that really inspired him and was moved to do something. Karabushi said yes, and they fought, and it was amazing. Alright, 2009. Honestly, I'll say it's noticeable that despite any success or momentum that Omega was gaining, it wasn't significant enough to sustain. Like, the Golden Lovers won the DDT KOD Tag Team titles, and Omega also became thus far the first and only man to win the PWG World Championship in the Battle of Los Angeles Tournament last eliminating Roderick Strong in the finals and becoming the first Canadian to do so, winning that championship. But it was over in Ring of Honor that he was putting a lot of guys over and working his way up the ranks and feuds against the Kings of Wrestling, the All Night Express, and Austin Aries, where Kenny actually also saw himself getting two challenges for Aries' Ring of Honor championship, with the latter of the two matches being a Mississauga in an event called the Omega Effect, where Austin actually beat it Omega, but via referee's decision. Like, I gotta see that, because it sounds like he knocked him the fuck out. And see, that's what I find interesting is, is that he had his most success in Canada, but he was not gaining much traction in America. And although he was frequently returning to Winnipeg to defend his PCW title, admittedly other than one title defense against Davey Richards on the 8th anniversary show, his defenses were never against anybody notable beyond the promotion's fame in the province. But it was finally on March 10th's PCW 9th anniversary show that Omega was finally dethroned by Will Damon after successfully defending the belt just prior to Antonio Scorpio Jr. Now this wasn't the end of his PCW career. He will always return to PCW and at least work six to ten matches. However, that will become less frequent over the years to come. And even though he'd be later booked with Chris Stevens to win the PCW tag team titles in July of 2010, he'd rarely ever defend or wrestle in Canada for that matter, as his North American schedule lessened for tour-based scheduling in Japan. Though March 26th of 2010, Kevin Steen defeated Kenny Omega at Ring of Honors from the Ashes show in Phoenix, Arizona. And that's a dream match I'd love to see again. And by June of 2010, Omega worked his first New Japan shows in the Best of Super Juniors 27. And something I actually wasn't aware of, Mr. Six, Kenny Omega, and Riho! <laughs> On June 13th, 2010, won the DDT Nihonkai Six-Man Tag Team Championships. Why is this worth mentioning? Because Riho was only 13. Like, that, that is unreal. And finally for 2010, Ring of Honor holds its Death Before Dishonor 8-Eye pay-per-view at the Ted Reeve Arena in Toronto, witnessing Christopher Daniels defeating Kenny Omega in a 16-minute match. I guess, why not? I'm not exactly sure where these vignettes were taped. Well, obviously Rosita, or when these were taped. But if you want to see Kenny's best character work, please check out some of his PWG skits with Chuck Taylor as Men of Low Moral Fiber. <laughs> They play these old-school 50s greasers straight out of West Side Story, and they just continually keep picking on El Jamerico. It's just brilliant stuff. And, you know, why it's worth mentioning is pretty obvious, because it was with Chuck Taylor and PWG that Kenny would be first introduced to the Young Bucks. Well, look where we are today. Anyways, now that we're donning 2010s and Kenny would begin to gain a little notoriety with the Golden Lovers tag team with Ibushi, going as far as to unsuccessfully challenge the future Bullet Club leader Devitt for the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title, and before the year's end, would actually win the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Team titles with Ibushi over Devitt and Taguchi in Apollo 55 in my second recommended match from Destruction 2010, available on Daily Motion if you just look it up with a cursory Google search. Honestly, this is just... 
a spectacular professional wrestling match that had me anticipating more than a few markout moments, and I was not disappointed, and neither will you be. It's fucking amazing to see Taguchi actually work a match and not be carried through one. Like, seriously, blink and you'll miss it stuff. Like, y you can tell there was no language barrier here because all four men were wrestling on the same fucking level. It was, it was just amazing. But now we gotta get back on topic. Because by this point in 2011 onwards, Kenny would effectively wrestle lesser and lesser each year in Winnipeg, or Canada essentially, like I mentioned before. But what I find so fascinating is that no matter how much traction he was gaining, or how much his popularity was rising, or how drastic his life was changing, his always made a commitment whether he can squeeze in a surprise date to the Winnipeg loyalists or actually book a few fucking shows here or there for like sporadic events. And that's really where I have to leave off on his Canadian career because the rest of his career is going to take off in 2014 when he joins the Bullet Club and repackages himself as the cleaner. Which is just basically someone who takes care of business and just cleans up the mess left made by the fucking other members actions. Like, that was when I first heard of Omega myself, but it wouldn't be until Jeff Jarrett's GWF that New Japan Wrestle Kingdom's event was actually airing with English commentary, and that's where I finally got to witness Omega Wrestle for the first time against... Ah, Kishida, I think. Fuck, honestly, I, I remember the next night before, because it was truthfully at New Year's Dash, of all fucking places, that I'd never forget the name of the best bout machine. When he turned on AJ post-match after winning their tag match against Yoshihashi and Nakamura, that Kenny declared AJ was no longer the leader, but essentially Kenny was taking shit over, and to which he did. And it's because I didn't follow New Japan with a fine-tooth comb and watched every single show, whether it had... English commentary or not, that I am going to miss a lot of, of his accolades and his success if I just spoke on him from my own opinion. Because truthfully, I have no loyalty to any professional wrestling federation. I very much just kind of jump in and out. Sometimes I'll go through phases where I have to see everything and then there are phases where I only want to see the big matches or the best matches. So for the duration of his New Japan career, I'm going to leave you with J-Crowned by Matt Charlton, which is also available on Kindle. About $10. Highly recommended. It perfectly encapsulates the importance of every single champion in Puro history, from Noah to New Japan and All Japan, even going as far back as Ricky Dozan's promotion. And forgive me, off the top of my head, I can't remember what that belt was called. But I'm just going to... Again, I can't tell you what page it's on, other than it's the Kenny Omega page in J-Crowd. Because <laughs> I'm reading off a of Kindle. Are you ready? Quote, Having earned a reputation as one of the most dynamic and entertaining wrestlers in Japan long before signing a full-time contract with NJPW in the winter of 2014, Omega's first year in New Japan saw him add a collection of championships with two IWGP Junior Heavyweight titles. Dominant, and yet somewhat restrained as the cartoon villain The Cleaner, and far down the pecking order of the Bullet Club hierarchy, Omega sought opportunities to grow and develop and at the start of 2016 presented such an opportunity. With the departure from NJPW of AJ Styles, Carl Anderson, and Luke Gallows, Omega usurped the leadership of the Bullet Club, pinning Shinsuke Nakamura the night after Wrestle Kingdom, declaring his intent to move up the heavyweight division. One month later, Omega won his first heavyweight title in New Japan by defeating Hiroshi Tanahashi for the IWGP Intercontinental title, left vacant after Nakamura had also left for Japan for the WWE. 
with NJPW in need of a new artist. Omega rose to fill that role, winning the 2016 G1 Climax, the first non-Japanese wrestler to do so. And I have to mention, otherwise Imp will fucking travel to Canada and bitch slap me, that he won it on his first fucking try, which actually nobody ever mentions. I think that's hilarious that only one guy actually points that out. <laughs> Anyways, back to the quote. Omega secured a main event title match with Kazushika Okada in the main event of the Tokyo Dome on January 4th, 2017. The degree of international interest in the match was unprecedented, and although a classic that reshaped the concept of a heavyweight title match full of high-impact, high-flying moves, Omega was unsuccessful in his challenge. The following year saw Omega become the inaugural IWGP United States Heavyweight Champion, less than one month after he had once more unsuccessfully challenged Okada in a match which was arguably better than their first, ending in a one-hour time limit draw. He went on to reach the G1 Climax Final, having defeated Kazushika Okada for the first time along the way, though as it was a part of the tournament, the IWGP title was not on the line. To settle the issue between them, Omega and Okada fought on June 9th, 2018, in a no time limit 2 out of 3 falls match which ended after 1 hour and 5 minutes with Kenny Omega as the new IWGP Heavyweight Champion. Defending the title successfully three times before the end of the year, Omega's reign and tenure with New Japan was brought to a close with a defeat to Hiroshi Tanahashi in the Tokyo Dome on January 4th, 2019 with Omega leaving New Japan to help build something new, All Elite Wrestling. End quote. I just wanted to quickly say thank you to everyone who actually chimed in their two cents on Kenny Omega's memories, perspectives, and match recommendations, including One Nation Radio, keeping it strong style, and wrestling overtime especially, because they all have shows to plug. And it seems as though that there's a strong majority of people like myself who were introduced to New Japan first in 2016, and then quite a few bit more in 2017, 18, and 19 respectfully, so for myself, it was AJ Styles being the IWGP champion, defending the belt in Ring of Honor, that made me want to see New Japan and Wrestle Kingdom, and subsequently all the shows thereafter. But it was Kenny and a lot of the other Gaijin Juniors who I actually gravitated around for those first few years watching due to that language barrier because not every show had English commentary. I think it is fair to say that Kenny is not a household name, but is perhaps... And I'm gonna fucking take a leap of faith here saying this, but is perhaps the world's best known independent professional wrestler of all time. Just like CM Punk, and even more so like AJ Styles before him were with all the diehards. I mean, every single wrestling fan by now has in some way, shape, or form come across Kenny Omega. Since his breakout performance in the 2016 G1 Climax, and unanimously, I was recommended to recommend you guys to check out his first Meltzer-rated 5-star match on the 18th day of the 26th annual G1 tournament against Tensuya Naito, which was also recently been getting a lot of love since it just passed the 4-year mark to the day, but I'm not gonna cop out and recommend it. No. So I'm recommending Kenny Omega defeating Hiroshi Tanahashi at the new beginning in Nagata, Japan on February 14th, 2016 for Shinsuke Nakamura's recently vacated Intercontinental Championship. This particular match, just like the previous two, just show how dynamic Omega's range is as a professional wrestler and how legitimate of a seller he can be when he remembers. But really, just the right amount of Bullet Club interference to make this match effectively dramatic and not just look like some WCW overbooked shit show. Like, I seriously forgot how good this match was until I actually rewatched it for this project. And so now by this point, 
He's become elevated to the heavyweight division, and he'll go on to lose the Intercontinental title to fellow Canadian Michael Elgin in New Japan's first and to date only ladder match in history. Honestly, it's so ironic that I compare this to the Benoit Jericho match at the Royal Rumble 2001, because it's so fucking excellent, but it has to feature a fucking piece of shit getting the spotlight here. So, yeah, that's that's R-A-S-S-L-I-N for ya. For real, though, this match fucking rules. And I feel like because Dominion 2016 was just such an awesome show all around, this will get easily forgotten. But with that out of the way, my final note on that historic G1 Climax from 2016... That Goto match in the finals and their King of Pro Wrestling rematch right after were just fucking incredible as well. You gotta show some love to Goto too, man. And I'm just throwing it out there too. Hey man, Page and Kenny Omega actually teamed up for the first time ever in 2016 for the New Japan Tag League. So any newer AEW fans listening shouldn't think that Hangman doesn't have any history or connection with Omega and Kayfabe. Because they do go back quite a bit. And then as we turn the calendar over to 2017 for a lot of people, admittedly, this was the first time they had ever heard about or even wanted to see New Japan or Kenny Omega. Because on January 4th, 2017, by Dave Meltzer's account, the greatest professional wrestling match of all time had taken place. Kazuchika Okada defeating Kenny Omega in 46-45, the match that broke the star ratings and the internet. And I remember at the time, it was a very mixed reaction, because whether you followed the Wrestling Observer or not, like myself, it was nearly unanimous that this was at least one of the greatest matches of all time. But was it the greatest match of all time? Even for myself, upon rewatching this, it kind of felt like the first 20 minutes or so of the match was just kind of going through that feeling out process and it wasn't totally like relevant to the match. It was just easily skippable until the action starts to pick up. But fucking hell, when the action does start to pick up and Omega starts attempting murder on Okada's life, that's when it gets interesting. And I do love that not just the story of the match, but the story arc of the whole feud was if Omega hits the one-winged angel on Okada, he's got him beat. But that's the only way he can defeat him. And that's kind of that's kind of a shitty wrestling trope too at the same time. He can only beat him with this one move. <laughs> and that, my fucking friends, is why protecting moves, characters, and finishes are so vital to professional wrestling. Because then you can tell stories like this. And yet, this feud feels once in a generation. Because, for lack of a better term, wrestling isn't wrestled like that anymore at least not as often enough and that's the shame of it so here's where i'm gonna cop out is that two of my recommendations are gonna be okada and omega matches the first being their encounter in the g1 climax 2017 b block that match that went under like half an hour or less fucking phenomenal stuff right there oh my god just blows your mind why they couldn't do that the first time but it plays to the story. And obviously the Dominion 2018 match against Okada because that was the culmination of the feud. And honestly, in my opinion, the pinnacle of both of their careers. I don't think either of them have ever reached that peak since. I don't think more people have talked about New Japan or Kenny since that match. And with the Elite leaving New Japan in the beginning of 2019 together, that really did kill the buzz going into G1 Supercard. There was a void felt. Do not mistake it. 
I would even go as far as to say that Chris Jericho versus Kenny Omega at Wrestle Kingdom definitely attracted more first-time viewers, both legally and non-accountably, such as myself. I say that because I feel Chris has done more for the wrestling business than Hulk Hogan has ever given back. And Chris giving that rub to Omega definitely legitimized the cleaner to the newer fans. And look, you guys, I'll always be real with you, and this is how it is. Despite all this work, I am not a complete mark, you guys. So I'll just say, like, I'll speculate at some point after the success of All In, where Kenny Omega defeated Pentagon Jr. in that non-title dream match. And honestly, I I'm just, I'm speaking out of memory. I did know this once, I've heard this once, but the real fucking marks, they, they will tell you the truth because it's so fresh in everyone's minds and memories that I could have just fucking looked this up for myself, but why bother when you can just listen to a podcast that's not this one? <laughs> I'd speculate that Tony Khan, Cody, the Bucks, and Kenny all got together and decided that they wanted to change the way that professional wrestling was conducted in America. And with the advent of AEW, Kenny would obviously lose the IWGP title to longtime rival Hiroshi Tanahashi at Wrestle Kingdom 13 and choose not to re-sign. So with that, I'll leave you with the only Kenny Omega match that I've gotten to see live firsthand. And I haven't seen it in years. It's probably still on my PS3, but the bitch is so old, I need a new controller just to access the fucking video folder to copy them over. <laughs> so, good luck if you can still find this for yourselves, unless you got an honor club. Because from Ring of Honor and New Japan's War of the Worlds show in Toronto at the Ted Reeve Arena, Kenny Omega and the Ring of Honor World Tag Team Champs, the Young Bucks, defeated the team of Kazarian, Hiroshi Tanahashi, and the Ring of Honor World Heavyweight Champion of the World, Christopher Daniels in an experience I fondly remember being such a great match. It was also Will Ospreay's birthday I just remembered offhandedly, but maybe it was just a better live experience than an all-around great match if I put my bias aside, but I'll let you decide for yourselves. And as for Kenny's Canadian career thus far, Chris Jericho shocked everyone who cared in November of 2017 when he showed up at Power Struggle to announce that he's challenging Omega to a match at Wrestle Kingdom 12. And then Jericho Omega's return during the World Tag League to get a surprise beatdown in on Omega. And I think it's safe to say in retrospect, that pairing was a beneficial draw to Wrestle Kingdom and a New Japan altogether. So like I said, finalizing on Canada, after being booked as one of the key attractions to win a dream match against Pentagon Jr., Jericho would again make a shocking debut for technically All Elite, technically Ring of Honor, by dressing up as Pentagon and attacking Kenny post-match. In October of 2018, just two months after the success of All In, the Winnipeg and Wrestling Stars used Premier Championship Wrestling's platform just to get an angle over. Impact Wrestling Vice President Don Callis cut a fucking scathing promo on the IWGP Champion, essentially taking credit for Omega's success, saying, quote, the only reason you got that shot at Okada where you won the title is because I got my friend Chris Jericho to agree to wrestle you. Because otherwise, you would have been gone. Without me, there's no main event at Tokyo Dome because I beg Chris Jericho. And Chris Jericho said to me, who the hell is Kenny Omega? Chris Jericho said, there's only three people from Winnipeg who ever met a goddamn in this business. Roddy Piper, Chris Jericho, and Don by God, callous, end quote. Initially, like I said, this was used as a selling point to put a little heat on the Chris Jericho Cruz, uh, I think that six-man tag team match. However, for the PCW faithful, 
They get a follow-up to Callus calling out Omega just some months later in March of 2019, when once again PCW was used to work an upcoming double or nothing angle between Omega and Jericho. In an unadvertised six-man tag team match, Don Callis pinned Omega to end the match in Kenny's first match after leaving New Japan and Don's first match of 15 fucking years. Who cares who the other participants were? That's all that fucking matters. So, there you go, Ben. And there you go, everybody else. Uh, you want additional context? How's this for additional context? Kenny Omega has racked up 16 Meltzer-rated matches that were given five stars or higher. And I now have to legally say that because goddamn Kenny over here went and broke the scale Great Muda style just by taking shit to the next level. Seven of his matches rated over five stars, meaning that today, potentially, fans of The Observer may consider him to be the greatest wrestler alive, if not of all time, because he holds the unprecedented record of having the greatest match ever with Okada, and most recently this year, the greatest tag team match ever with Hangman against the Young Bucks at Revolution. That's just Meltzer's opinion, but a fuck ton of people do agree with him, so I gotta acknowledge it. Kenny is also the inaugural IWGP United States Heavyweight Champion, and due to COVID, John Moxley has recently surpassed Omega for the longest overall reign. Had he stayed, I would also speculate that he'd be the first current day wrestler to win every single championship as he was just shy of that goal missing only the IWGP heavyweight tag belts. Omega is also only the second man in New Japan history to win both the IWGP junior heavyweight and world championships. So who's the first? Nobuhiko Takata, of course. I'll, I'll spare you that wiki search. He's the only Canadian-born IWGP champion. and He's the first Canadian-born PWG champion. And along the subject of belts, he's won a variation of 24 different championships 36 times in his career as of Monday, August 24th, 2020. Kenny's won three different world championships that are recognized as world championships, but he's also technically won five companies' top world championships in overall 10 times, with him still currently being a double champion for the AEW Tag Titles and the AAA Mega Heavyweight Championship. He's currently competed on 26 pay-per-views and has main evented 9 of those respectively. He's wrestled in 1166 matches to this day, winning 57% of them with 673 wins under his belt and 470 losses, with actually 23 draws, and that's quite a fucking few more than I was expecting to tell you the truth. He's also a high contributing factor to the recent success of New Japan between 2016 to 2018, and can also be attributed to drawing somewhere between 39,000 to an estimated of 42,000 for Wrestle Kingdoms 12 and 13. Weekly Pro Wrestling gave him their best bout award three times in 2010 for the aforementioned tag team match that I recommended from Destruction 2010, and again in 2016 for his breakout performance against Naito in the G1, and finally in 2017 for his Wrestle Kingdom 11 match against Okada. Tokyo Sports also has a best bout award, in which they also coincidentally gave the 2010 Destruction Tag Team match that year's award, and again in 2017 for his match that broke the internet at Wrestle Kingdom 11, and once more in 2018 for the Dominion match that I dare say was the peak of New Japan. Sports Illustrated named him the Wrestler of the Year in 2017. PWI ranked his Wrestle Kingdom 11 and Dominion Classics as Matches of the Year for 2017 and 18, gave Okada vs Omega Feud of the Year as well in 2017, and ranked Omega as PWI's Best Wrestler of the Year in 2018 in the PWI 500. But the only stat that matters? Wrestling Observer Newsletter Awards, which Omega has collected quite a few as of late with, such as... Best Wrestling Maneuver 2016, 17, and 18 with the One Winged Angel. 
Feud of the Year 2017 versus Okada. Japanese MVP 2018. Most Outstanding Wrestler 2018. Pro Wrestling Match of the Year 2017 versus Okada at Wrestle Kingdom 11. Pro Wrestling Match of the Year 2018 versus Okada at Dominion in Osaka Joe Hall. And Wrestler of the Year in 2018. Kenny Omega isn't my favorite wrestler ever, but he has been one of my favorite people to watch this decade, and I respect the guy for all his contributions to the business, and I think it's pretty cool that there's finally another top star in wrestling representing Canada. But to tell you the truth, Kota Ibushi, I think, is more impressive than Omega at times, because the real difference between the two styles are Kota is a natural giver, whereas Omega is a natural taker, who wrestles his best matches when delivering high-impact moves, whereas, again, Kota is the greatest seller on God's Green Earth, because he will take just about any fucking bump, he will look fucking mad doing it, and he will make you look like a million dollars by doing so. And with that, I am done. So, I hope I've educated at least one or some of you on who Tyson Smith is, and that is the person playing Kenny Omega. Obviously, this is a Canadian wrestling history podcast, and Ben, we both know how much you donated, so be fucking grateful that I followed through with just a 10-day turnaround. Like, I'm still working on my own shit here, my actual projects, so just be patient, guys. I won't be releasing an episode next Monday, but I will return in two weeks' time with a history of professional wrestling in Ontario. So until we speak again, just remain calm, keep strong, and stay free, y'all. No man, no company, no entity owns pro wrestling. We- And you guys know where I come from. You guys know where some people want me to go. But guess freaking what? Guess freaking what? What we did today blew everything out of the water. We shall continue this journey. But for now, we all must bid you at you, so please, with me now, if you will, goodbye!